you want to turn your Bibles to John uh, chapter 9, we're going to read John chapter 9, and then we're going to go to John chapter 10 and finish at verse uh, 21. It's a fairly long passage, but it's very narrative, um, and maybe it's a way to think about it. It's, a, it's another Sabbath miracle that's happening here, and you can think back to the miracle that Jeff talked to us a few weeks ago about, and maybe something to think about is to compare and contrast how this story is different from the other story, and how the different actors uh, remain the same in their response or react uh, differently. So, John 9, all the way through to John 10, verse 21. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not this man that sinned, nor his parents, but the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbours and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. And others said, No, but it is like him. But he kept saying, No, I am the man. So they said to him, Now how were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. Now they brought the Pharisees. Now they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for it is not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is, doing, who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called his parents um, of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become one of his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, why? 
This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshipper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? So they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believed, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger will, they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to kill, steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and doesn't care for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold and I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to pick it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? But others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. And can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Well, thank you, Daniel. And wasn't that beautifully read and uh, brought out that... This is an incredible drama. John is the, uh, the master of drama. And he could see, and I hope we can too, the, um, the uh, power of this interpersonal exchange. As things are now developing in the story of John, and uh, we've skipped over a couple of chapters... We're coming now to the period of the year in Jesus' last year where the Festival of Lights has happened, great parade, celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles and other things such as that. 
And, and Jesus plays off this idea of light and sight and revelation, uh, God revealing himself, getting through to people. It's that sort of uh, issue that has been bouncing through the last few chapters that we haven't looked at. And the whole issue comes down to the issue of attestation. How can you say who you are? What's your record? What's your track record? Put up or shut up. Things have got very willing, even to the point that in the last chapter, uh, uh, two chapters ago, they've already sent around the temple police to arrest Jesus. And in the face of his uh, commanding personality, they go back empty-handed. That's the sort of thing that's been happening. This is a very turbulent period in Jesus' uh, career. We often get the wrong idea that Jesus sort of just floated around like some Hindu guru and touched kids and said wonderful, you know, guru-type things and uh, greeting card-type sentiments. But uh, Jesus is the provocateur par excellence. I want to look at this passage today, briefly looking at John 9, because it sets the tone for understanding John 10. This is crunch time, uh, where Jesus and finally has it out with those alternative leaders of the Jews, particularly the scribes and the Pharisees. And uh, it's, it's the time for a showdown, and this is really what we're coming to here. Um, my life is, uh, in ministry has been an interesting one. I began by um, thinking that I would... <clears throat> be a pastor, then moved into thinking, no, I really need to be involved in teaching theology. That was my passion. <clears throat> but a little while down the track, the older I got, the more I started to see that there are two sorts of fronts on which the battlegrounds of the forwarding of the church is being fought. One is the issue of doctrine, truth. That's always the case. I don't want to downplay that. The other issue is the issue of leadership. And uh, <clears throat> I started to see through my experience in church life and non-for-profit life and mission life that uh, there is a crisis of leadership. It's part of the crisis of leadership that's in the wider world. And we've just seen it overnight with uh, now the fact that we have, as Daniel prayed, a minority government. It's going to be an interesting uh, negotiation to get anything sensible through our parliament. But not only that, but there is this sense that last yesterday in Sydney was a protest vote against the quality of leadership. And I think that is the age that we're in where we're very, uh, it's part of our Australian ethos, we're almost suspicious of leadership, we're highly critical of our leaders, but also the very concept of leadership is often being held up as something which is maybe dispensable. Maybe we could do away with it. Leadership is part of the problem, not part of the solution. Well, I don't think Jesus thought that. And I want to look at Jesus' attitude about his own leadership. And then we can look at our leadership in the light of that. I often found in my consulting work in non-for-profit organisations that really it boiled down to two things. Whenever I was invited into a church or a non-for-profit organisation like a mission there were always one of two things. I could eventually go to the issue that the people who had appointed the previous leader <clears throat> did not really understand what leadership was. <clears throat> they appointed someone on other grounds, their personality, their money, their name, their heritage, but not whether they really were a leader. 
And the second issue was the issue of process. Frequently, rational and just and legal processes in the appointment were short-circuited. That was always the case in any situation where you had a dysfunctional, conflictual organisation. It's critical, if the Kingdom of God is to go ahead, that we, the people who are served by leaders, that's an interesting concept, <laughs> um, uh, are able to discern true leadership in our time. This is true for the church, it's true for the workplace, it's true for the political sphere. A country or an organisation or a church that cannot recognise true leadership because it may not have ever seen it is in dire peril. Its future is very vulnerable. And so in this story in John 9, we see uh, Jesus again provoke a miracle that's only going to bring him into conflict with the official leadership, those who are leaders by name. And Jesus is walking from one skirmish into another. And coming out of one stoush, one day, he's walking with the disciples and they point out, just in passing, this man here has been born blind. Now that's a theological conundrum sitting there because they work out of a, a quid pro quo, you get what you deserve universe. That's how they think. That's their worldview. But here's a man who has not lost his sight. He has not been injured or damaged or he had defective sight. He never had sight. He just didn't have the apparatus. He did not have that nervous system and all the muscles that go with sight. And so it dawns on them, hey, that, my universe can't answer this question. How come this guy was born blind? I mean, bad things happen to bad people in a quid pro quo universe. Good things happen to good people. But this guy didn't even have a track to get a record. How come he's, he's born blind? Was it his parents? Well, if it was his parents, we've still got a conundrum because they might have been baddies. But why judge the son? That doesn't seem fair. And they've got that, that problem there. And Jesus points out, and this is a good lesson for those of us who think that healing is out of God, uh, illness is not part of God's plan. Jesus said, this is right in the heart of God's plan. And uh, this is no accident we've run across this bloke. We're going to see God glorified through this. And Jesus, as you read, we won't spend much time on this, but he, he takes some clay. It's sort of reminiscent of someone else being made out of clay. You, does that ring a bell? And he spits on it. Now, that's not a nice habit. <laughs> on a sporting field... <laughs> in the station, <laughs> it, but he, he spits on it. That's an unclean act in the law. And he spits on this, and it's the Sabbath, and he makes little mud packs, bonks them on the guy's eyes, and then sends him to wash it off. What a daft thing to do. And not only does he send him to wash them off, he sends him to wash them off in a pool that literally its word means sent. So when people saw this guy padding around, who used to be beg, begging, they'd go, what on earth is he doing? He goes down, he washes, and suddenly this guy has the faculty of sight that he's never had. I imagine that that would have been a remarkable experience 
when he's depended, like my old dog Max, on his ears all his life. And he's never seen anything. And all of a sudden, it's technicolor. <laughs> and, and I think it would have been pretty good sight. And he, he starts walking back and seeing the things that he's only heard and smelt. He's hearing voices from faces he's never seen. He's starting to put the two together. It must have been a mind-blowing experience for this poor guy. And the neighbours see him and they know who he is. And some say, it couldn't be him. I mean, that just doesn't happen, you know. But others are saying, it's him. And he said, it is him. It's me. <laughs> and they take him to the authorities who can give a verdict about this. The Pharisees. They're a cheery bunch. And uh, they're the experts on all this sort of thing. And so they take him to those who've read the hard books and they're going to give verdict. And that's what they do. They love to put their slide rule over, or um, tape measure, uh, uh, theodolite, whatever it is. They like to run it over uh, these sort of cases and that's gratifying to them. And they bring him and so we have three, in this chapter, three forensic investigations. Their method, there's nothing wrong with their method. They, 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 first of all, they, they check the facts. And uh, so they ask the eyewitness uh, <laughs> what actually happened. And uh, he gives them the lowdown. They then check his ID. And uh, so how do they do that? They get his family. And his family come in and say, yep, that's our son. Don't ask us how it happened because you know, they don't want to get him in the hot water and be aligned in this Jesus versus Pharisees debate. And so then they go back and they look at the details. This is good forensic process. And they try and pick the fault in the story. Where's the linkages break down? Somewhere here. We've got to go over this. And uh, don't you like this guy? He, uh, you know, but he's got the courage of knowing that something godly has happened to him. You know, he, he has first-hand experience of the intervention of the Almighty. So he is full of holy courage. And he asks the darn obvious question. And he says to, they, they say to him, well, now the problem is their forensic method is very good. But their learning strategy is very bad. And in organisational life or educational life, there are two sorts of learning. There's one sort of learning called single loop learning, where you simply adjust your position based on the data but you don't adjust your assumptions. That's single loop learning. Double loop learning, you take in the data, but if it critiques your assumptions, you revise the assumptions before you revise your behaviour. And they are using single loop learning. They come to this last investigation and they say to this guy, OK, tell us what we want to hear and tell us the truth. He says, you don't seem to be too keen on the latter. <laughs> we want to hear you corroborate our assumption that this guy is a sinner. That's untouchable. That's a non-negotiable. And this fellow goes, well, that's very interesting. And he hones in on the assumption level. And he says, God doesn't listen to those who are sinners, does he? Proposition's pretty sound. God doesn't listen to that. You know, something godly has happened here. The hand of God is all over this. And then he says, 
Secondly, we haven't seen anything like this. We Jews haven't seen anything like this since the foundation of the world. In fact, you've got to go back to the first man to see something created out of nothing. But that's what's happened here. I wonder who this guy is, or at least who he's working for. We've seen a miracle in my experience, he's saying, that is parallel to anything you can name going back to Adam. It has all the hallmarks of the Creator all over it, and you're asking me, explain the theology? Come on. And they don't like that. He has wedged them. And so they instead shoot the messenger, and they say, who are you to teach us? And they cast him out of the synagogue, which is to mean he is a social outcast. He's not just lost his membership of the local synagogue, but to be a member of the local synagogue is to be a member of a community. He has suddenly become persona non grata. Just an aside, I wonder there might be some people here who are underemployed. It's a new catchphrase. Or you've gone through periods of unemployment. Maybe this is a male issue. But I think you have experienced something like this guy. Experienced then. I used to uh, find it very interesting, until I myself was unemployed, (laughs) to study friends in Christian ministry who were unemployed. I was doing some research on that, on terminated pastors. And it was interesting that there was one commonality between people that I find whose ministry or whose work in secular work has been truncated too soon. They all give a testimony that revolves around a narrative where somewhere in the talking about their unemployment, they talk about feeling invisible. Or it's like I have evaporated, that sort of language. No one sees me anymore. I used to be a player. Now I'm not even a spectator. I'm not in the game. I'm persona non grata. It's part of male psychology, I think. I don't know if ladies experience the same thing quite as forcefully, but I suspect maybe. But for males, it's like mortification. You lose your generativity. It's a very healthy thing to have goals and to be productive and to be part of the institution. But when you lose that, it can feel like you're evaporating. No one seems to see you. I want to encourage you that that is normal, that is to be expected, but it's not the only thing that's happening in your life. The tracks of psychological development for a male are not the same as the tracks for spiritual development. Oh, they overlap for many parts of your life. But for myself, and I'm sure for those who get through, it's discovering that there is a different set of tracks, that despite what society may say about you or the institution may infer about you, Jesus finds you as he found this man outside the tent. And this guy, Jesus, rendezvous, just as he did with the lame man in John 5. He now rendezvous. He seeks the man out that this man may discover 
something more important than institutional membership. And isn't it fascinating that this man, in the dialogue that follows, Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? The guy basically says, I would if I knew who he was, and Jesus basically says, guess who? You're looking at him. And the fellow has moved from being telling his story about Jesus the man to when he's investigated, he tells them he must be a prophet to now he knows that, though he doesn't have a way of explaining it, that doesn't matter, he is face to face with his maker. He might be outside the temple. He might be outside the tent. But what is more precious? He has come close to the maker. And he worships him. I don't think he would have started clapping or (laughs) singing. I think it would have been just an eyeball to eyeball gaze. And I'd encourage you that if you are unemployed or your life has for health reasons or other accidents, ceased to be as productive as it possibly could. To get off the psychological track of seeing your worth in productivity and discovering your intrinsic worth to the maker. That can be entirely liberating and I'm telling you, there is no other way to gain some healing than to look eye to eye and rediscover the maker. Well, in the middle of that, the Pharisees come along and they're eavesdropping the conversation and they say, well, so you're telling us we're blind? And uh, another stoush begins and Jesus says, look, I, I, uh, I could have some sympathy on you if, uh, if you were born blind. There'd be hope but it's because you refuse to look at your assumptions. You have chosen to believe you see when you won't examine your theological assumptions. Nothing can be done for you. And now Jesus brings the book to a head and he then turns and he says, look, obviously, let's cut to the chase. This is all about attestation. This is all about who is the shepherd of Israel. Is it you guys or is it me? Let's talk about shepherding for a minute, he says. And in verses 1 to 6, he pulls out the metaphor and the logic of what he is saying should not be lost on them. The Old Testament was full of talking about shepherding as the shepherd was the king or the leader of the nation. And uh, I encourage you to read the passage on your text there. Oh, If you were wondering, there's an outline in there. (laughs) A little late now, but anyway, there's an outline in your, uh, uh, what do you call it, bulletin, care link, um, that might help you follow this, uh, this point along. And Jesus, I want to point out three things that Jesus says about leadership in this lovely passage in the light of this. What Jesus is doing here, he's saying, Let's check out who the real leader of Israel is. This is his logic. In the light of our recent record, who is more like a shepherd? And as I was saying, the Old Testament is full of 
the shepherd metaphor being applied to Israel. And of course, we have the great psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, which applies to God. And God wanted his shepherds to be like he led the people of Israel. That was the whole idea. Jesus is the same today. He wants the people of God to be led by shepherds who lead just as he leads. Pretty tall order, isn't it? Pretty hard act to follow. But that's what he expects, nothing less. And so he talks about shepherding to these people and he likens shepherding in... um, He's basically saying there are two sorts. You work out which one you are and I'll tell you which one I am. Uh, He who doesn't enter by the sheepfold, by the door, but climbs in the... If you see someone climbing over a sheepfold, over a big fence, like the sheepfolds often were attached to the homes in those days, great big thatched fences and you'd have large herds of sheep that are imagined buttressed up against a, a, a stone wall or up against a house. If you saw one, someone coming over the fence, you know they're not a shepherd. You know, the, the covert nature of their operation gives them away. The shepherd is overt. They're open and they lead unapologetically. They lead their sheep in and they lead them out and they find pasture and, and they're free and easy. That's the nature of the way with the shepherd. What's been happening here, folks, I ask you? The shepherd hears his voice and calls his own by name and he leads them out. That's a fascinating image, isn't it? It's a picture of intimacy. It's a picture of this man who heard Jesus and he knew his voice and he recognised the person. A friend of mine was on one of those Holy Land tours a few years back and uh, he came back and he's telling me... um, about a phenomenon that he'd seen some marvellous historic places, but the thing that stuck in his mind was a day when their bus was going up a Judean uh, hillside and was really stony country, and and he's wondering how on earth can anyone eke out a living here when the bus suddenly stopped and everyone's told to get off, we're going to be stuck here for a while, because there was this flock of sheep on the road. It was a narrow one-way road, And there over on the stone wall beside them were three shepherds having smoko. And they weren't going to move their sheep until they finished their drag. (laughs) And so uh, they waited. And then curiously, the three shepherds headed off in three different directions and they just, one whistled, one called, one made some other grunt. (laughs) And... The sheep just separated, flock by flock, and those fellows never looked back and counted their sheep because the sheep follow the shepherd that cares for them. They they build a bond, and the sheep just separated into three different flocks. He was amazed. They were just about to get back on the bus when another flock of sheep starts coming up behind them, and there's this guy behind them with a great big leather strap banging the ground with this strap, and the sheep are sort of moving up the highway and surrounding the bus again. And uh, my friend said to the bus driver, oh, is this another shepherd? He said, no, that's a local butcher. (laughs) (laughs) And it frequently, we have just as much ignorance as my friend when it comes to discerning true leadership. True leaders... Lay down their life for the sheep. True leaders have an intimate bond. True leaders know people by name. They are fascinated with that. It matters not how high or tall or great you are. They want to know you. That's a picture of a leader. 
a stranger they won't follow or free from. It doesn't matter if you dress up in shepherd's garb. In fact, that'll probably spook the sheep if they see you uh, trying to pretend to be one. But uh, Jesus tells this to them and guess what happens? Straight over the head. They didn't get it. And one of them turned to one of the Pharisees turned to the other one and said, "What's he talking about? I can't understand it." Oh, he's giving us a lecture about sheep for some reason. I don't know. It just had no bearing on them. And so Jesus again has to spell it. And he changes the metaphor and he says, "I'm the door of the sheep." Let's try this one. I'm the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep wouldn't listen to them. But I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved. The particularity of salvation through Jesus alone. They will be saved and they'll come in and they'll go out, etc., etc. The thief comes only in to steal, kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Here we have two shepherding models contrasted. The model of the door speaks about the difference between leadership as domination versus leadership as generation the delight of a true shepherd is to see people flourish the delight of the false shepherd is to give people permission to breathe you better come through us it's a different sort of door you probably i don't know the workplace where you work or what your experience of leadership is but those two things often go for leadership and they're entirely different uh, models. I had a friend that I was teaching years ago in um, a leadership course. He was a doctoral student, so he'd been in the program. He's in Malaysia. He'd fly out to, to take an intensive and give a paper and fly back again. And I'd been with him for several years now, and I got to know him very well in various courses. And uh, he's a remarkably talented man, but more importantly, I felt him as a remarkably gracious man. And he is an associate pastor in a particular... In fact, I had lunch with him last week. It was great to catch up after many years. And uh, I said to this guy one day, um, you know, I, why don't you... Didn't you ever want to be a solo pastor? I just think you've got all the qualities that would really build a healthy church. You know, he's quite, he's quite a delightful fellow and a deep walk with the Lord. It just sort of reeked out of him. I was impressed. And it wasn't that he's a charismatic figure or looked like a film star or, you know, his wife looked like an air hostess, you know. No, he was just um, genuine. I said, why don't you want to put your hand up and become a solo pastor? And he said, oh, I don't think I could ever be a senior pastor. And I said, why is that? Oh, I could never intimidate people like a senior pastor. I thought, where on earth did he get that idea? He got it from the model he'd seen and assumed was biblical. It's a pragmatic model. It gets things done. It might build big churches, but it's godless. It's from the opposition. It's not this picture of generative life. Generative pastors, generative leaders, generative bosses, they leave a mark on your soul that's positive. So the longer you're with them, the longer you're in that church, the longer you're in that organisation, you become a more noble person. 
And that's the picture of leadership that Jesus has. Leadership is very important because it brings people to levels of life that they might not have experienced. And then Jesus points out in the next verses, there are two different shepherding motives. In verses 11 to 16, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, he doesn't own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand. He cares nothing for the sheep. Here we have two contrasting pictures. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me. And just as a father knows me, I know the father and I lay down my life for my sheep. And he's just about to do that. Here, the contrast in term, is in terms of the inner motives. And the false shepherd is self-promoting, whereas the true shepherd is self-sacrificing. And the occasion when you can pick the true from the false is when the wolves come. It's fascinating that Acts 20 Paul is finishing up a two-year ministry in Ephesus. The Apostle Paul uses exactly the same metaphor. I wonder where he picked it up. I think he plagiarized it. And Paul picks it up and he says to the Ephesians, I know that when I'm out of here, what does he say? What's going to come? Savage wolves will come to devour you. And in fact, they'll even come from within the flock. Years ago, I had a, I want to digress, I had, I've got to tell you this story, it's just come to me. <laughs> um, uh, I have a mate, and I'd always go on holidays to his farm in uh, southern New South Wales. One year, they had a particular fox plague, it's almost a wolf, right? Um, and uh, uh, he, they had a particular fox plague, and, and it was in lambing season, and each night, there was one particular fox that they could not catch, and this fox if you want to understand, a fox has no motivation. It doesn't kill to eat. It kills to kill. And they're just killing machines. That's their pleasure. Just to have an impact. They feel alive when they kill. <laughs> and they're human beings like that. And the interesting thing was, we would go out and we would get the spotlights, we'd get a couple of Toyotas and, and the guns ready and we'd all be primed to see this fox. And sometimes you'd just whistle and you'd see the fox in the distance, and they'd turn and they'd look, and he'd go. And by the time we got into that paddock, he was already in the next paddock because there was this big rail um, ridge running right through this property, and he'd go under through one of the water pipes, and he'd just go straight through into the next paddock. By the time you got out through the gate, around in the next paddock, opened the gate, got in, found him again, guess what he'd do? Oh, goodness great. So he'd go back, get in the car, go, you know, here's leading us a merry chase. And then we started to notice that he disappeared. And we'd got two trucks. We'd have a couple in one paddock at one time. So we'd chase him through the hole. We were smart. And he'd, we'd chase him into the beam of the next paddock. But they never saw him come. And we gave up. We couldn't work out where to find the wolf. And then one night, we're standing there, and I just turned my head and saw these two, two little blue eyes. And guess where they were? Underneath the belly of the sheep. Looking out. The sheep were standing there. 
That's the best place to hide a wolf. It's in the flock. And the opponent knows it. It is an astonishing thing. But I want to say, if you're going to be a long-term church, you must not be a naive church. You've got to discern the fact that wolves come from outside in. They bring seeming goodies, but they're totally motivated by self. In fact, they have no real motivation in life. They don't do anything productive. They're parasitic. There's a lot of organisations like that that would devour your church. I get sent letters from them as a pastor every month. And they want to come into my church to do their ministry. And I put them straight in the circular file. They're answerable to no one except their own egos. Beware. Jesus was. He spoke, Paul was. Are we? Lastly, Jesus comes to the end of this passage and he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life and take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, of authority to lay it down, of authority to take it up. This tells us a central truth about ministry of all kinds, the ministry that you're doing in this church. And it tells about leadership ministry in particular. Isn't that a fascinating statement? The Father loves me because I freely lay down my life. I lay it down of my own accord. That's the nature of true leadership. It is voluntary, not obligatory. Voluntary, not obligatory. Uh, it reminds me of the passage in Hebrews 12 too, which I encourage you to look up. For the joy that was set before him. He laid down his life. That's the reason. Oh, he despised the shame. He hated every minute of that. But he had his eyes set on the joy of what he would achieve when he went to the cross. Years ago, um, when I was a young pastor, young, precocious, 26-year-old pastor, I was in a church that I wish someone had told me and it had a... I think it's actually its reason for getting together was to conflict. <laughs> they loved a Barney. They loved a Stoush. <laughs> it was really odd. And I sort of wondered what I walked into when uh, uh, I took up the pastorate there. And one day, I remember we had one of those church quarterly meetings that you'll never forget. <laughs> Only Baptists can do that. <laughs> And uh, we've got that down to a fine art, I'm afraid. And um, you know, Benjamin Franklin said, you know, the, the uh, councils make the roads and the Baptists wear them out going to meetings. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, uh, it's that nature that we used to sort of roll up to these meetings and take minutes and then get stuck into each other. I couldn't believe it and, and one day I'd been totally blindsided by this little coalition of the pure and finally got out and I said to my wife, I've got to get out of here, I just need a detox. So we got in the car and we drove down the highway and mile after mile 
you know, I was going, I can't believe he said that. I can't believe she said that. I mean, what? what? I was only in their home last week. They could have talked to me then. I was boom, you know, I was, and I'm going over and I'm churning. And suddenly the car screeched to a halt in the middle of the highway. And my wife turned to me and she said this fascinating word. She spoke words which are truer than I think she realised. And she said this phrase. She said, you know, I will not respect you any more if you stay here or any less. And then she drove on. And I thought to myself, I started thinking, what a silly thing to say. Doesn't she have any empathy? And then I thought, wow. And the insight hit me suddenly down that highway. I had to ask the question of myself. Why am I really doing this? Or better still, for whom am I really doing this? Who is in my grandstand? Is it my professors that thought I had promise? Is it my mother-in-law and her steely gaze? Is it my family? Is it my own sense of deficit ego that needs to be needed? And I tell you, at that moment, that really was my ordination when I cleaned out my grandstand so that I could only hear the sound of one set of hands clapping. You cannot be a leader and sell out your grandstand. You sell out your grandstand, you're going to sell out him. Your networks will matter too much. You won't be free to sacrifice and obey and be effective. And Jesus wants us all to live effective lives. But you can only do that when you can stand face to face and worship the maker. Then you don't fear men. Then ministry begins. Let's pray. Our Lord, our God, Thank you, Father God, for a moment with you today. We thank you that as we stand here and we listen and do the act of worship of listening and then the act of work of responding, we, we thank you, Lord, that you receive our worship. But just in this small point of time in your great eternity and our history, we simply want to be quiet for a moment and identify those voices, those figures that inhibit our pure obedience to you. And we want to be able to say to you, Lord, if we hear a commendation from anyone, the only voice we want to hear, the only face we want to see, the only hands that we want clapping are yours at the end of the day. Liberate us to live lives of significance 
in the eternal track, regardless of what the institutions say or do or think. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.